Uh, Exodus chapter 25. As we come to the book of Exodus, we have seen that this is the story of God's people being rescued and saved. We have seen that this is uh, more than just the, the tale of, of God's people being rescued and saved, but they've been rescued and saved for a purpose. And that purpose we see fulfilled at this turning point in Exodus chapter 19, where God meets with his people at Mount Sinai to give them this covenant to enter into a relationship with them, where he becomes their God and they become his people. He creates a holy nation. And now, as uh, Moses has journeyed up the mountain in chapter 24, we leave off in verse 15, Moses going up the mountain, this cloud-covered mountain with the glory of the Lord. And after six days, the Lord calls out to Moses. And on the seventh day, uh, he goes into the midst of the cloud. And so he goes into this cloud to receive uh, instruction from the Lord, to receive the plans for the tabernacle. We'll get into what that is in just a moment. Um, but here, he communes with the Lord on this mountain for 40 days. He's spending time with the Lord. The Lord is giving him instructions step by step for every bit of uh, how he ought to be worshipped. And also for the instruments that would be used in this worship. He gives him the uh, two kind of tablets, the stereotypical image that we have of Moses walking down the mountain with the two tablets, like he's carrying two footballs, like, you know, making his way down the hill. The Lord gives these tablets to Moses in this uh, period. Now, I want you to note one thing as we come to this, what we're going to look at in chapters 25 to 31, we're only going to look at 25 today because I'm not insane, 25 to 31 will essentially be repeated in chapters 35 to 40. There's a little bit of nuance and detail. So as we uh, make our way through, we're kind of also covering chapters 35 through 40. I'm not going to reteach the same uh, five chapters again later. So know that, um, that we have that in mind. All right. We start off in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Now, Moses, he goes up on the mountain, and he waits six days for God to tell him what to do next. And on the seventh day, the Lord calls to him. He gives him instructions for the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle is uh, this tent where God will meet and dwell with his people. But before he tells Moses anything about how to construct this tabernacle, how it's to function, the first thing that he tells Moses to do was to collect an offering for the tabernacle. Now, I want you to notice here that God does not impose a tax on his people. He's not telling them, hey, this is something you got to pay whether you like it or not. This is a free will offering, all right? Now, we're going to go pretty in-depth here looking at the contributions and the free will offering and, and what it looks like to tithe. And, and part of the reason that we're going to go a little bit in-depth is because we only talk about tithes and offerings when we come to it in the Scripture. It's one of the benefits of looking and teaching through the Bible book by book and verse by verse. Like, we don't have to talk about money a lot, but when we come to it, we're going to talk about it because that's where it's at uh, in, in the Word. 
Now, we're here this morning, and, and so we're going to dive a little bit deep on this to give us some context, to give us an understanding of what it's like to be God's people and what he requires of you and I. So this first thing that we look at is this offering is an entirely voluntary offering. It's a free will offering. It's not something that would be due like a tax. It's not a bill that God's saying, like, hey, you owe me this much. It's something that's entirely uh, freely given from the people's hearts to the Lord. If you notice, that's how he defines this. He says, the Lord tells him, take a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. It's the Lord working in this person's heart. It's them being moved by the grace of God, being thankful and wanting to contribute out of, of this thankfulness, this gratitude. Now, how, how does that gratitude come about? We'll, we'll see in, in a moment. But I want to draw some distinctions here. There is a difference between the tithe and the offering. The tithe is kind of the thing that we, in our mind, is something that's more specific, that, that we are more experienced with. A tithe is uh, something that God did call out for his people. There was a specific moment when, did, when God did tell his people, like, hey, you need to give a certain amount. Uh, and the tithe literally means one-tenth, ten percent. Now, upon entering the promised land, God requires his people to give 10% of their produce back to the Lord. He says every tithe of the land in Leviticus chapter 27, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Now, the purpose of the tithe was to support the Levites. When God divides up the land with his people, the different tribes all get a portion of land, but the Levites don't get anything. They are dedicated to the Lord, and the Lord says, I'm going to provide for you. If the Levites had to till their own land and they had to become farmers, they wouldn't be able to be in the service of the Lord. And they wouldn't be able to operate as God's agents upon the earth, ministering for the people. And so the, the Lord tells them, like, I'm going to take care of you guys. You're not going to have any land. You're not going to get the things that the other people get, but I'm going to, I'm going to have them contribute to help you out. Now, the tithes also supported worship at the temple in Jerusalem. So that, that's uh, some of the portion of the tithes. It's contributing to God's work. So we take tithes here on Sunday morning to contribute to the running of God's church. Now, the way that our church is run, we have super low overhead. And it's a good thing, too, because we don't. We, you know, the makeup of our church is such that um, you know, we're a very transient community. And it's a lot harder for us to make up what, what we need. Now, the thing is, in the entirety of our church, we've never stressed about money. And why, why is that? Well, it's because the church belongs to Jesus. And he's going to sustain it, or he's going to shut it down. But I'm not going to be in control of it. I'm not going to be the one that puts the you know, guilt trip on everybody. Like, hey, you guys need to do... That's not me. It's Jesus' church. It's not my church. Jesus wants to shut it down. He has the right, the ability, the power. He can shut it down. But he's going to sustain it, and no one will, will, will close it if he wants it to keep going. It's his church. It belongs to him. And so the way that the tithe works, though, is as we pour into uh, the church here, it supports the ministry. It supports what we do here on Sunday morning. It's how we pay to rent this space. It's how we pay for when we do occasional barbecues and when we pay for the church insurance that like, we have to have by law. So that way, you know, if someone trips and they're not trying to sue us, like we don't 
We don't end up in legal battles. We have to pay for some of these things. So the contributions there that you give to the Lord, you're not giving to the church. You are surely writing maybe a check or, or giving specifically to our church. But these things are God's resources given back to him. He's using them, and they go back in to be used so that more people might know Jesus. We might have doors open so that people might walk in here, and then we might be Jesus to them, and that we might have the opportunity to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so we can go out into the world and then live our lives for God's glory and have people meet Jesus. So we try to run these things in a way to facilitate God's ministry. It belongs to him. He's going to sustain it. Now, there's also an additional, additional opportunity in offering. Now, I want, I want to draw the, the distinction here. God calls all of his people to tithe. He doesn't make that one optional. He says, hey, if there's a ministry and you're a part of it, you should get behind it and support it. You should contribute. And maybe you're not in a financial position to do so, but the Lord says, hey, pray into that. Pray that I would provide for you to get on board that and to start contributing in that manner. Now, on the opposite side of it, there is the offering. The offering, again, is entirely free will. It's voluntary. This is, I've already given my tithes, but I want to give something above and beyond what God has worked in my heart. I'm so thankful there's a specific need a brother or sister has in the body that uh, we want to meet. There's some, somebody that we want to reach out to. Uh, you know, that's why whenever we tried to do events, like we went, uh, we, did a, we did a men's outing uh, in, in the summer, and we tried to make it to where like, hey, we don't want money to be an issue. And so if you can't come, we try to pay into that. So that way, if somebody can't afford it, we can help those people who are part of the body pay into that. We can pay for them. We can come alongside them and show God's love. So we try to use these things in this manner. Now, the free will offering operates in that way where the Lord's moving in your heart. He's working in your heart and calling us to uh, give out of the abundance of our heart, out of this joy. Now, we look at New Testament offering by contrast. Because in the Old Testament, God says, hey, 10% is what you should give. How much should we do in the New Testament? Now, we don't find an exact amount. We find the guidelines are to give cheerfully, not, out of, not with a grudge, not out of like this compulsion where you're like, gosh, I guess I have to do this. But to give with the right attitude. The motive of the heart is more important than the actual action. It's what... God is trying to work in your heart to separate your mind from saying, no, that's mine. And properly recognizing that this is something God has given to me to steward over. Now, 10% is a helpful guideline because that's what God directed his people to in the past. Uh, but it's, it's not the hard and fast rule. It's what you've decided. It's what God's working in your heart. Now, I also want you to note that that 10% is also set up by God to be a, a percentage. It's not an amount. He doesn't say like, hey, everybody needs to give this specific amount because if you're pretty poor, that's a lot of money to you. Or if you're really rich, that's not very much money to you. But he gives an amount so that it scales with what you can afford. What, what God has given you, he's asking you to give a portion of that. Now, we're to give cheerfully. It doesn't tell us how much, but we've decided in our heart. And it says God loves a cheerful giver. Now, we also see that we are to give regularly. No matter how much we give, Scripture encourages us to give regularly 
And the only way you're going to do this is if you have a plan to follow. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul tells us uh, in verse 2, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. So that way you're ready, you're prepared. If you don't have a plan, if you, you notice there, he's like, on the first day of the week, this is when you should plan to do this. You should be ready. Put something aside so that you can give it to the Lord. We're also told in uh, 2 Corinthians that we should give generously with the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, generously is very relative depending upon <laughs> your financial circumstance, your situation. But Paul encourages the church to give generously, and he uses the story of the Macedonians, the Macedonian church, in giving to the church in Jerusalem. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, he tells the story, and he's trying to exhort the church to give in this way, to be generous. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. I want you to notice there what Paul says. The people who are in extreme poverty were the ones who gave what they could manage and even beyond what they could manage. Now, normally I wouldn't recommend giving beyond what you can afford. You wouldn't, you know, you don't want to go put yourself into debt, but there are instances where we see that that's a good thing to do. Look at how Paul ends this. He says, this isn't as we expected. We didn't want them to do this. But they gave themselves first to the Lord. They said, Lord, is this what you're calling us to do? As your servants, we have an opportunity to serve this other church, this other group of people. And we don't have very much money, but we can give so much and we can even give beyond that. We can give even more than, than what we think. And it might hurt us a little bit to give beyond that. But we think the Lord is calling us to do that. And so they do. And Paul says they gave, they, they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Now, why did they do this? You see, these Christians understood that they had been rescued and saved by the grace of God. They understood that Jesus rescued and saved them. And that he did not need to take on their burden. He didn't need to come and rescue them. But he did. He made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. He became, the king became a bond slave to serve people. And so they said, if our king has done such a thing as this, why should we not then extend ourselves to the point of emptying us of our own physical goods, our material goods, the things that we have? Why should we not also be like Christ? You see, what they understood was God's grace upon them and the, his work in their hearts, it compelled them to act in this manner. Their hearts were just swelling with, with gratitude and thankfulness. And so they wanted to give back to the Lord. Now, bringing an offering is one of the best ways that you can give back to the Lord, that you can serve the Lord. 
It's something that God invites us to do. This is, again, we're talking not about tithe, but offering, going above and beyond what God has called you to give already. One, one commentator gave this story, and I think this is a really good, uh, this example, I think it's a really good example of how we can do something for the Lord, how we can show the Lord how much he means to us. Because a lot of times we think like, well, why should we give? Because God doesn't need like our money. Like what's he going to do? Spend it on something? Like what, what's he going to do with that? And then I'm just going to not have money. And he's going to have more money that he doesn't need. But this, this example, it, it really hit home with me. One of the things that I really experienced uh, was this specific thing. Growing up, there would be uh, every June, my mom would kind of pull us aside and be like, hey, like your dad's birthday's coming up. You know, and we're like four, eight, ten, whatever, however old we are. And then I'd go like kind of hang out around my dad like, hey, dad, like, so what do you want to do for your birthday? Like, you know, try to be like all sly as like a seven-year-old. Like, oh, what do you, what do you want? And like the only basic thing I knew how to get him was like one of those fabric tool belts. So he probably has like 90 of them because that's why I got him pretty much every year. Oh, oh, you need a tool? Oh, a tool belt. Okay. And then he would be like, yeah. And then he, he would like on the, on the side be like, oh, also, uh, how's your week going? Do you need any money? And then he would give me like some money. Because he would know that, like, I wouldn't be able to go get him a gift. I wouldn't be able to pay him. I, would, I wouldn't be able to go out and buy something. I, you know, there's not a lot of eight-year-olds who are rolling in cash. And so he would give me some money. Oh, hey, here, here's some money. Why don't you um, think about what you might want to buy? Just kind of, like, giving me something, sending me out. But then around his birthday, I went out and bought my, like, little tool belt or whatever gift I was going to get him. And came back and was like, oh, Dad, here, look what I got you. And he opens this gift knowing that he paid for this gift, but yet so happy to receive it. You see, it's not about the money that you give. It's about the relationship. The Lord knows that the money that's sitting in our bank accounts, the resources that he's given us, it belongs to him already. It's already his. And you're sitting on this assumption that like, oh, nobody knows I have this money. It's mine. It all belongs to me. It's, it's all protected in this little area. And the Lord's like, no, nope, that's all mine. Like, I just liquidate that if I wanted to, and you'd be just done. The Lord knows that those things are there. They already, he already knows that they belong to him. But what this is, is God giving us an opportunity to say, hey, do you want to bring me a gift with the money that I already gave you? Do you want to do something with that money that I've given you to show that love? It invites us into a relationship with him to show that love, like those little kids coming up with like weird, funny presents. That, like, you know, our parents are excited to see. This gives God's kids a tangible way for them to demonstrate their love for him. So what are we supposed to bring as an offering? What, what does the Lord uh, prescribe here for the children of Israel? Verse uh, 3, here's what God tells them to bring. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twilled linen, goat's hair, and tanned ramskins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. 
Now, he tells them, here's what you're supposed to bring. Precious metals, fabric and leather, wood, oil, precious stones. First thing he tells them, gold, silver, bronze. Okay? They had plundered all of this from the Egyptians. So they didn't even have this because they were slaves before. And they were, they were given these things by the Egyptians on the way out of Egypt. And they would not have had these things had God not allowed the Egyptians to give them these things and given them favor. So it's God's grace that they even have these things in the first place. Then he's like, hey, those things that you have, I need some of them. I want you to give some of them to me. They're to bring fabric and leather Blue and purple uh, and scarlet yarns, fine twilled linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goatskins. So these are things that are dyed wool. They're super expensive. The blue yarn was uh, dyed from a, a shellfish. You would have to catch like a ton of them to make like a tiny bit of dye. And uh, then they would put this uh, on, the, on the yarn and it would dye it. They had the purple uh, there, the purple yarn that was developed from this dye from this weird snail. Uh, and then also the scarlet yarn was developed from a worm and some like kind of uh, powdered eggs. And I'm not going to explain the whole process. Anyways, it was really hard to make these things. It was super expensive to make the dye for this. And so they were very valuable. And the Lord's asking them to give these high quality, high demand items. Now, they also brought fine linens. And, you know, this is where we... Um, get that kind of like that the understanding in the phrase like Egyptian linens and cotton it's with their specific style they they had a higher thread count than anybody else even at that time and so they probably learned this and they probably also took some of these linens from Egypt with them and then they're also to bring different uh, hides they're to bring leather goat hides tanned ram skins goat skins now in your bible it might say this is kind of weird but it might say badger uh skins or porpoise skins or sea cow skins uh and believe it or not sea cow skins is probably like the most accurate so what is a sea cow well it's actually it's actually a manatee and i didn't even i was like no way a manatee but i i literally like was like that can't be real and i went to national geographic yesterday and i looked it up and they were like yeah manatees live in the red sea so apparently uh they're they had manatee skins. And, and, and essentially, where those things were to be used were in the roof of the tabernacle to make it waterproof. These animals that were in the water, they uh, would have these things prepped and uh, would, when it rained, it would push water off of the roof of the tabernacle. So uh, we see that they're to bring a wo uh, wood, acacia wood, which is hard and, and uh, durable. Now, this is one of the one of also God's ways of allowing all people to serve him, right? Maybe you didn't make out so well and you didn't roll out with like a ton of jewels and you didn't have the super expensive yarn, but this made a way for even the poorest of God's children to give. Cuz all you had to do was go out and like look around and be like, "Oh, there's an acacia tree. I'm going to chop that down and cut it up and bring this." So even if you didn't have anything, you could go find one. They were uh, plentiful in the area, wasn't a big deal. You could go get one and bring it to the Lord. Oil and spices, this was for lighting these sacred lamps. We'll, we'll look at that. Incense. Precious stones, these were like the greatest treasures. These weren't everyday items. Uh, but the best of the best was given to the Lord. And they were told that these are for uh, making the ephod 
in the breast piece. This is something that the high priest would wear. We'll get to the description of that as we move through. Uh, but th- these specific jewels that they were to have. Now, verse 8, we're told, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. So the purpose of the tabernacle, we see, was to be the dwelling place of God. This is what God says. Make for me a sanctuary, a dwelling place. It's what this uh, tent was to be both a sanctuary and a tabernacle. The word sanctuary means separation, a holy place, this place that's set apart. It provide and you know by con, um, by nature also provides protection, and so then we also find the word tabernacle to mean a dwelling place. So this is a set apart place, a place that is holy where God will dwell. They are to make this place, and what God's telling them is, I'm going to come down and live amongst you. I'm going to have my tent in your midst, and I will be with you. Now he tells them. Make this exactly, verse 9, as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. In all of its furniture, so shall you make it. Now, the Lord will say this a couple times as we go through and look at uh, some of the items, the furniture that he tells them to make. And the reason is because these, uh, the instructions that the Lord is giving them are a pattern of the heavenly realm. They point us uh, to look forward to the heavenly realm, to God's throne room. The writer of the book of Hebrews, he describes it this way in chapter uh, 8, Hebrews 8, verse 5. He says that the, the priests at his time, they serve a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Well, what he's saying there is that these things are simply a, a shadow. They're being reflected from heaven uh, of what God's light is projecting the shadow onto the ground and they're going through the motions working in that earthly tabernacle, that earthly temple, but those things ultimately point to a greater reality, a heavenly reality. We'll see the first of these as we start looking at the furniture that they are to build. Look at verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. So when you think about building a structure, when you think about, hey, I'm going I'm to uh, start planning out my next house, my next apartment, the place that my, is my dream house, what do you think about? The frame of the structure? Okay, here's how long it should be. Here's the, here's the outside. Here's, the, here's the, the infrastructure. I know that's where I think, because I think, like, where am I going to put all the speakers and the electrical outlets and, like, all these things? I get super nerdy into it. But we often think about, like, what the exterior is going to look like. Oh, the curb appeal. When people pull up, when my, when, when my friends and family roll up, like, what do, what do I want them to, to just immediately see? And that first impression, what, what do I want them to understand? You think maybe about like, well, here's what it's going to look like in my living room when I have guests over, when we're, when we're having a, uh, you know, like a dinner party and people are coming to eat. Here's what it's going to look like. You have this in your mind, the, the first impression of this. 
And it's natural for us to think that way, but the Lord doesn't start in that place. He starts with the ark. God is working here from the inside out. And what he's doing here is he's giving the people, he's giving Moses the first impression. Lord, uh, Moses, here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to see first. Not the outside, but what's on the inside. In fact, the ark is the only piece of furniture that's in the very uh, center portion of the tabernacle. There's nothing else. It's an empty room with the ark. And so, God works from the inside out. He's setting this tone for what his uh, dwelling place will be like. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was essentially a box. It's made of acacia wood, overlaid with gold, three foot, nine inches long, by two feet and three inches wide, and two feet and three inches high. So you're thinking maybe this big, but it's like not. It's like this big, like really small. So I said, we got to go in person to this tabernacle experience because you'll be like, oh, way different than I thought. Right? Don't think Indiana Jones. Like, just throw all that out the window in your mind. What God does here by starting with the ark is he directs the attention of his readers, of Moses, of you and I, to the fact that God's presence is central. It is important for his people, and it is the place where his people will meet with him. It's this earthly symbol of heaven. Now, we find on the ark descriptions uh, in verse 12, you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put uh, them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. So the ark didn't have handles. This wasn't like some sort of like suitcase that had like a handle that you were supposed to grab. Uh, the, the way that you carried it was with these gold uh, overlaid wood poles. And there were gold rings that were attached. And you would slide the poles through. And then there would be somebody on each side that would hold the poles. And then somebody in the front and somebody in the back. And then you would walk and you would carry the ark. Nobody actually, uh, th that was the only way. Now, I want you to also notice the poles are to remain in the rings. The poles are to remain in the rings. Now, when we move something, we want to kind of like unpack it, right? We want to be like, okay, like it's there. Now let's like take everything and get it all settled so it looks all cool and how we want it to be. What God's doing here is by allowing the poles to remain in the rings is giving a reminder to all who would see this that the only way to pick it up, the only way to move this, was by touching the poles. If there's no poles, you might come in and be like, oh, like maybe I'm going to just kind of give this a little tilt, move this around. It says, it's, a, it's a constant reminder, you should not touch the ark. The poles are there. If you need to move it, that's the way you would move it. To touch the ark was to die. And the ark represented the holy presence of God. And so someone who was unclean coming into the holiness of God would be cause for this punishment. 
And so the poles were the way that God said, you are to move this around. So he makes it absolutely clear that it's only be carried with poles. Now, there was something that went inside the Ark of the Covenant and also something on top of it. First, what goes inside? Look at verse 16. And you shall put into the Ark the testimony I shall give you. So this is the two tablets that contained the words of the Ten Commandments. This is the law that governed God's people, but the law that also convicted God's people of sin, of breaking his law. When you, uh, when you trespassed, when you made another god, when you stole, when you created an idol, it was that law that stood against you saying, you are wrong and there is a penalty. Now, this is what's inside the ark. Now, what goes above the ark? Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits, uh, two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. Shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat? Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat you shall, uh, shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread their, out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces to one another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So what goes above this box, what goes above the ark, what covered it was a lid of pure gold. This was called the mercy seat. And it had two sculpted uh, angels, these cherubim, which we find in other scriptures surround God's throne. And the, they were to be facing toward each other and then they would have their heads looking down and they would have their wings pushed out expanded over towards each other. Now, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant was designed to be a picture of heaven. At God's throne, he's surrounded by angels, and the cherubim on the Ark represented the angels beneath God's throne. God tells them specifically, make them look down. This is the same picture that the angels at God's throne look. They look down in awe and worship. They're acting uh, in reverence, revering the Lord. And so above the cover, between the cherubim, God would be there in the form of this cloud enthroned. And the law would be below inside the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the mercy seat that is there, the cover, is essential because God's holiness would keep man at a distance. And the law would not be kept by Israel. They will repeatedly break the law. They start breaking the law before Moses even returns with the instructions for the tabernacle. They're already blowing it. And so the way that God's people would be able to relate to him was through the mercy seat. Now, when we think of, we, we've talked about that this is the vision of God's throne and, and his, his throne room, and uh, this is a, a vision of the hel- heavenly realm, and there's God uh, 
in heaven and the angels are at his feet worshiping him and this is supposed to be a picture of that so as we think about the mercy seat we think like okay this is like maybe where god's sitting down but that's not the case this is the the place the word seat is more related to location rather than the actual uh sitting place on a throne this isn't where god sits down this is the location you know like in the government we would say uh where is the the seat of power this is not where uh, power sits, but where it's located, where, where the authority and command comes from. And so when we look at the mercy seat, what we're seeing here is that this is the place where mercy is located, where it's found. It's found between the law and between a holy God. Now, the Lord tells them, I'm going to meet with you above the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was only used once a year on the Day of Atonement. First, the high priest would come in. He would offer sacrifices for his own sins. And he would take the blood from the sacrifices and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, making atonement for his sins, covering his own sin. Next, he would come in and make another sacrifice, but then he would take that blood again and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and in front of it, making a sacrifice for the nation of Israel, making atonement for them. And this act was a demonstration that their sin was forgiven through this atonement. The people, in effect, were covered by the blood. As it was sprinkled upon them, they are covered, just like they were a chapter ago, as we looked at in the confirming of the covenant. They are a people who are protected by this blood. And so the mercy seat would be the way that God was able to maintain this relationship with his people. Now, we said that this is a picture of the heavenly realm, but this points more uh, directly to Christ as our atonement. This is exactly what Christ was doing on the cross. He was offering himself as a sacrifice to the Lord. We're told in Hebrews chapter 9, when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things that have come, then through, uh, through the greater and more perfect tent, so he's saying there's a, a better tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So what he's saying here is that Christ has made an atonement for all who will trust in him for salvation. He has made a way for mankind to relate to God. He has accomplished this work. And so it's at the cross of Christ that we find our mercy seat. That's, you know, like we don't relate to God on the basis of this Ark of the Covenant anymore. We relate to him through the cross. It's the place where the blood of Christ atoned for our sins. It reconciles us to God, bridging that gap between our unholiness and God's holiness. Now, stick with me as we move through these last two quickly. 
Verse 23, you shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and the molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners uh, at its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. So this table is this uh, table of showbread. It's, about, it's made of acacia wood overlaid with gold, similar to the Ark of the Covenant. This table is three feet long, one feet six inches wide, and two feet three inches high. So it's like smaller than the coffee table I'm looking for right now. It's pr- pretty short. And this table had rings to also carry it. Uh, but this table was not holy in the sense that you could touch it, but it we're told that you are to carry it specifically with the poles. Now, verse 28, you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And then we're told, in addition to the table, they are to make plates for holding bread and dishes for incense, pitchers for drink offerings. Uh, in verse 29, you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. Flagon is like a pitcher. Uh, drink offerings, you shall make them a pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. So the purpose of this table of showbread was to set the bread of the presence before the Lord regularly. They would put out 12 loaves. We find later description of this in uh, some of other Moses' other writings. And this bread was to be baked the day before the Sabbath. And then on the Sabbath, the priests would eat the old bread and set the new bread on the table. And it was only the priests who could eat this bread. And the bread is called the show bread or the bread of the presence is because it's meant to be eaten in the presence of the Lord. It's meant to be consumed in his presence. Now, the showbread, it symbolized God's provision for his people. You see, God didn't need to eat the bread because God doesn't get hungry. He's not like, thanks for making me some bread, guys, because, man, I was dying. Whew, you got me cooped up in this little box. Like, that's, that's not the, the case here. It's not the situation. The Lord doesn't need the food. What this is, is God, it's symbolizing God's provision for his people and his awareness of their needs. You see, the bread was put out regularly, and bread is symbolic of our basic needs. This is why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. He's not saying like, hey, we all really need bread today. It's like, no, our basic needs, the things that we, uh, have, that we need to survive. He's saying you should look to the Lord as your provider for those. So here, they're recognizing that it's God who is ultimately the provider. He is ultimately the one who is meeting our daily needs. And now we find in verse 31, instructions for this golden lampstand. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calices, and the flower shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with callus, with callus and flower on one branch 
and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with callus and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms, with their calluses and flowers, and a callus on one piece with it under each pair of six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calluses and their branches shall be of one piece with it. The whole of it, a single piece of hammered work of pure gold, you shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown to you on the mountain. So a lot of instructions, a lot of calluses and cups and almonds. What's happening here, right? Uh, they're told to make golden, a golden lampstand. Now, why in the world would we need this? Well, they don't live in like a modern day society. And so the tabernacle was super dark. There were four, it was four layers thick. There were no windows. It had a complete roof. And so God had his people make a lampstand. And the lampstand was hammered out of a talent of gold, out of pure gold. And the, it, that, a talent would weigh about 75 pounds, so like a 75-pound lampstand, which is pretty intense. And it looks, it, there's a lot of description, but essentially in your mind, if you want to have a, a simple description, looks like a menorah. This is kind of the, the idea. There is one central lamp, and then there's three other lamps sticking out, well, three on each side. Three on each side. So one central and then three on each side. Seven lamps in total. Now once they were lit, they would be turned toward the table of showbread to provide light, not only for this table, but also for the rest of the room. And the golden lampstand would illuminate the holy place, enabling the priests to see so they could do their work as they uh, ministered unto the Lord. Now, we find, again, that exhortation in verse 40. See that you make them after the pattern for them, which is shown to you on the mountain. Remember, the tabernacle and the instruments therein represented the throne of God. It represented this heavenly realm. And in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, we find the description of seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. So this is essentially what's being made here which are the seven spirits of God, we're told in, in verse Revelation chapter 5. And so this represents the presence of the Holy Spirit in heaven. This is the description of, of what they are to make, that God's, uh, they're making this layout of God's throne room. What God is doing is he's inviting his people who, who have not known him in an intimate way to know him and to know what their promised future looks like. And for us, as God's New Testament believers, as his new church, as his new people, we've been invited likewise into this same relationship. Through the work of the cross, through Christ's atonement at the cross, he's invited us into this relationship. We're told in the book of uh, 2 Corinthians that now we see through this, this glass dimly, we see as though it's like a foggy, a foggy glass that we're looking through. When my kids were little, 
I was expert, uh, an expert at recovering foggy glasses because they would have like these little sticky hands, you know, and they'd be grabbing onto these glasses and I'd be like be picking them up and it's like caked and layered with like all sorts of like nasty kid hand stuff. Trying to like be like, that's definitely not mine. You try to look through it, you can't see anything. But then to pull out one that's clear. The, that description in, in, that Paul gives us, we see through just this glass dimly that, that it's not completely clear. But he says one day we'll see him face to face. This is the invitation of the tabernacle. It's laid out not so that we can just simply have a great story about a tent with uh, kind of bizarre furniture, but that we might understand and know God more intimately, that we might be invited into this relationship with him. Now, as we said last week, we don't need to have the high priest like they did then because Jesus is our mediator. He is our high priest, and he has made atonement, as we looked at in Hebrews, once and for all. His blood has been enough. It has paid the price for all, all of our sins. And so we only need to trust in him for salvation, to look to him, to receive new life. It's the only thing we need to do. And when we do that, we enter into this new relationship with him. We're invited in to be a member of the household of faith. And we receive those promises that one day we will see him face to face. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for your kindness to us in giving us this model of the tabernacle. We're thankful that you have shown us um, your wonderful character as we looked at the different articles, Lord, of furniture that you have put in place. And Lord, we're thankful that you have specifically made a place Lord, for mercy, at the mercy seat, so that we might enter into that relationship with you. And Lord, this morning, that is what, indeed what we want to do. We want to take hold of that mercy and that grace that you have shown us in your Son. And so, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to respond in kind. Lord, we want to respond with lives of worship, We want to respond in thanksgiving because you have been so generous with us because you have given us your own life lord we want to just say thank you to show you how grateful we are and so lord we pray that you would receive our adoration as we respond in worship now we love you amen